All right. Good afternoon, everybody. So we'll pick up uh, kind of where we left off yesterday. So we're talking about the development of the, uh, the pharynx and larynx. And today we're going to look at this kind of embryological structure that, that's going to keep coming back when you're looking at different uh, malformations and conditions and so on. And so it's going to say it forms from pharyngeal arch. And, you know, you're like, well, what is this pharyngeal arch business, right? So this is where kind of hopefully things start coming together. Now, I know embryo can be a little bit kind of overwhelming and challenging at times. Uh, but later on, once you do start doing the, the clinical conditions and you see the different developmental abnormalities, like this is where it kind of all comes back to and stuff. So I know it can be kind of uh, daunting at first, but if you really get the embryo down, it can really extrapolate down the road to kind of figure out, okay, if this doesn't go the way it's supposed to, what could happen? So you can, you can speculate on the different uh, developmental uh, disorders and conditions that you're going to have depending on what, uh, what part of the chromosome, what part of the pharyngeal arch will be affected. All right? So objectives, have a look through those. So all our pharyngeal apparatus, everything that we talked about yesterday, uh, essentially develops around the fourth week of development from, from these structures called the pharyngeal arches, pouches, uh, and grooves. Okay? And between the, the grooves and the, uh, the pouches, we're going to have this structure called membrane. So they will, they will come uh, important for, for a couple structures, but for the most part, uh, they kind of degenerate uh, in terms of the, the membranes. Okay? The pharyngeal arches develop uh, from the neural crest cells as they migrate into the mesenchymal uh, tissue in a kind of future head and neck uh, region. So each one of these arches is going to consist of a, a, a core of mesoderm tissue, and then it's going to be covered on the outside by the ectoderm, and it's going to be covered by the endoderm internally. So you're going to have all the three germ layers uh, represented. And each one of these arches is then going to be separated uh, by these kind of grooves, Okay, so we see on this image here we have, these are the arches, okay, and then the kind of spaces in between those are obviously the grooves. So if we pick it up around the uh, fourth week, so day 28, so this is kind of what we normally see on a kind of lateral section of, a, of an embryo, and they're going to be numbered kind of from, from uh, top to bottom, so we have first start, second, third, fourth, and fifth, sixth, and so on. Okay, we notice that uh, on future images as you go through, you'll see that the fifth arch uh, is missing. So it develops very briefly in humans, and then it kind of degenerates right away. So we're just going to be talking about one, two, three, four, and then we'll skip right to six. Okay? So if we do a kind of coronal section now from that embryo that we just had previously at around the fourth week, if we cut right through those uh, arches, what we, what we see is that there is all the kind of basic tissues represented within each arch. So it's going to have a kind of core of this mesoderm, and within it we're going to have a nerve, we're going to have kind of section of muscle, we're going to have an artery, and we're going to have a cartilage. Okay? So we see that kind of being consistent uh, through all the arches. So obviously from each one of these structures, this can then differentiate and develop and give rise to, to, to all the muscles that are going to be associated with that arch, to all the skeletal kind of components that are going to be associated with that arch, uh, nerves and arteries and so on. Okay? So if we look on uh, this image here, so this is the, the blue is the, going to be the ectoderm. Okay? The endoderm is on the yellow on the inside. And so we see between the arches, this is where we have those grooves. Okay? And on the inside, this is where we're going to have the pouches. Okay? And you notice now that the pouch and the groove, this is where the membrane is going to be. So the membrane separates the grooves from the internal pouches. And they're numbered uh, based on whatever arch they're kind of underneath. Okay? 
So if this is your first arch, then this is going to be your first groove. This is going to be your first pouch. Second arch, second groove, second pouch, second membrane, and so on. All right? Okay, so we talked about uh, the core. So all the so once we give rise to all these kind of muscular components and bony components and nerve components, this is going to be kind of where, where the adult kind of setup is going to be coming from. Okay? So once we know, for example, where the facial muscles, the facial muscles, which arch they're coming from, then you know that the nerve that's innervating the, uh, the muscles of facial expression, for example, was derived from that same arch as well. That's where everything kind of follows patterns. So we have muscles of ma mastication. There's a nerve associated with that. There's muscles of facial expression, a nerve associated with that. Okay? And we'll see how that is due to these arches. So once you kind of see where these things come from, it kind of starts making sense how the whole kind of head and neck region uh, is set up. Okay, so if we look at the, the cartilages first. So if we see uh, this kind of light green color here, th so that's going to be our first arch uh, cartilage. So this first arch is going to essentially give rise to kind of this mandibular kind of region. So if you remember, uh, later on, we'll see the, the nerve associated with that is going to be V3, the sensory presentation of V3 is the kind of mandibular region right up to the ear. That's essentially where we have uh, the first arch kind of giving rise to all these different structures. Now, the first arch cartilage gives rise to this, this, this structure that you might have heard beho uh, before called Meckel's cartilage. Okay? Meckel's cartilage kind of gives rise to this rudimentary uh, kind of cartilage of the mandible. Okay? But the mandible itself develops independent of this cartilage. So the, the cartilage itself does not actually contribute to the mandible itself. Uh, if you remember back from, from last term, uh, the mandible forms due to intramembranous uh, bone formation. Okay, so it doesn't form on top of a cartilage. So this cartilage degenerates, and the bone kind of forms completely independent of the cartilage. So it's not this classic kind of endochondral bone formation on top of a cartilaginous model. But this first arch cartilage does persist, and it gives rise eventually to the two bones in the middle ear, uh, that being the malleus and the incus. Okay. The second arch is going to give rise to the stapes, uh, the tip of the kind of styloid process, the stylohyoid ligament, and then the uh, upper part of the hyoid bone. So that's the lesser horn of the hyoid bone. Okay? The third we see gives the, the body and the greater horn of the hyoid. So the hyoid bone is formed by, by these two cartilages. And then the fourth and sixth, again the fifth one's missing, uh, then give rise to your uh, thyroid and cricoid cartilages. Okay? We move on to the muscles. This, this is where, where uh, all these kind of different groups of muscles come together. So we see that the first arch gives mostly rise to the muscles of mastication, so like your temporalis, masseter. Second arch is going to be the muscles of facial expression here. Okay? That includes occipitalis, that includes platysma. Okay? Third one is going to be the stylopharyngeus. Okay? So what nerve do you think is going to be associated with the third arch? Remember from last lecture, we looked at stylopharyngeus. That was the one exception of the pharynx, which was innervated by glossopharyngeal, right? So you can kind of already predict that glossopharyngeal is going to have something to do with third arch, okay? Fourth and sixth is going to give rise to the kind of intrinsic muscles of the pharynx. So what nerve do you think is going to be associated here? Vagus, okay? Facial expression, seven, mastication, V3. And that's what we have here, okay? So if you look at uh, this image here, so we have a little bit of a sensory presentation. So that's 
uh, kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about the gag reflex before, so all the sensory innovation to the pharyngeal region. Uh, so we see that uh, v, V3 is going give, to give kind of sensory innovation to the lower mandible, and obviously it's going to innovate also the muscles of mastication. So V3 is the only one that's motor and sensory. V2 is also associated with uh, uh, the first arch. It doesn't have any muscular components, obviously, to it because V3, uh, V2 sorry, is purely uh, sensory. But we did see it uh, giving sensory innovation to the upper part of the, the uh, nasopharynx. Okay? And like we said, second, facial, third, glossopharyngeal, and fourth is the vagus nerve. All right, clicker question again. So yesterday you guys were averaging 70%, so I'm assuming that's just, just steady Eddie. And no matter what I do, I'm going to get 70 here, but let's, let's see what we get. 42. All right, so we're digressing, which is good. Come on. Oh, there we go. Okay. So we're talking about the hyoid bone. Remember, the hyoid bone has is, is got that, I said, the lesser horn. Uh, formed by the second uh, arch and the body, and the greater horn is going to be formed by the third arch. Okay, so B is correct. 42. All right, so we have a nice little chart uh, to kind of just uh, summarize the, the, the different uh, derivatives that we were talking about uh, from the arches. Please add V2 to, to this chart. I think your, your notes just say V3 only. V2 obviously has the, the uh, sensory kind of component to the over the maxillary region. It doesn't give rise to, or it doesn't give innervation to any of the muscles, but just add it in because your embryo book has it associated with it as well. Uh, so I'm not going to go through this. So this, you can use this for study purposes, exactly what we just said. So it gives you all the kind of skeletal uh, components and muscular components. It's important to know that this is, uh, I usually get a, a question about this after the lecture, so I might as well mention it now. But we talked about the mechos cartilage, and we talked about the mechos cartilage uh, eventually degenerating and I said that the, the mandible develops completely independent uh, of the mechos cartilage, okay? But that doesn't mean that the mandible develops independent of the first arch. It still forms from uh, the, the, the tissue of the first arch, the mesenchymal kind of tissue of the first arch, but not necessarily from that cartilaginous rod that's present uh, in, a, in the arch, okay? So when you're thinking of first arch, you still got to think of this ma maxillary process, mandible, the malleus and incus, uh, even though it doesn't form directly from the, from the cartilage, okay? So when we're going to be talking about kind of uh, different uh, developmental abnormalities of the first arch, you have to expect some sort of mandible malformations, maxillary malformations, incus, malleus being either absent or small, so some sort of uh, uh, hearing loss or hearing impairment that could be present as well, okay? So if you start putting these things together, if any one of these structures doesn't develop from, from whatever reason this arch didn't properly develop, what could be the symptoms? What could the patient... Uh, have or not have, 
Okay, so if you start thinking like that and you can kind of start associating these skeletal uh, components and muscular components and think of taking them away or them being small, malformed, or not developed at all, then how the patient presented the clinic. Okay? Yes. In your notes, it's cut off as well? Yeah, we'll, we'll post a new copy. We'll post a new copy. Okay, so we move on to the, uh, the pharyngeal pouches uh, and the grooves. Okay, so we kind of mentioned already where they are. Um, so if we look at the, the pharyngeal uh, grooves first, so we have the first groove, second groove, third, fourth. Okay? What happens is that the second, third, and fourth groove kind of get obliterated. So the, the second arch kind of overgrows and eventually meets up with the sixth arch from below, and it kind of grows over it and closes it off, and eventually these, uh, these grooves just completely degenerate. So everybody, hopefully here that's sitting, doesn't have any kind of remnants of uh, of these grooves. So they're completely gone, they just kind of implode, nothing left, okay? So the only groove that really persists is going to be your first groove, okay? And this first groove will give eventually rise to your external acoustic meatus, okay? And if we then flip over to the pouch, the first pouch obviously would then give rise to your tubotympanic recess, so that would eventually give rise to your uh, middle ear and your, your station tube, okay? And obviously the membrane that persists in between is going to become the tympanic membrane. So that's where the tympanic membrane comes from. Okay? So for the grooves, it's nice and easy. It's just one structure. The rest of them uh, degenerate. On the uh, a pouch side, so that's the first pouch. All the pouches persist and give rise to some structures. So we have the second, third, and fourth uh, giving rise to these different structures. So we see the palatine tonsils, the parathyroid, uh, pharyngeal pouch giving rise to uh, both the inferior and superior parathyroids, and we'll see that there's a little bit of a kind of crossover that happens, and the ultimal pharyngeal body. Anybody know what the ultimal pharyngeal body gives rise to eventually? Okay, it's going to give rise to the peripheral cells of the thyroid gland. Okay, so we'll see that in a second. So if we look at the, the pouches specifically here, so we cover the first one. So here's a, the second pouch. So eventually the second pouch starts differentiating. That's going to give rise to your uh, palatine tonsils. So P2 being the pouch number two. Tonsillar sinus. So that's kind of where that, uh, the tonsils sit. Okay. The third pouch. So notice what happens to the third uh, pouch. The kind of derivatives of the third pouch eventually start migrating, and they kind of actually go inferior to the derivatives of the fourth pouch. So the third pouch gives rise to your thymus and your inferior parathyroid glands. Remember that you have four parathyroid glands, two on each side, a superior and kind of inferior, okay? And they're just found right at the back of the thyroid gland itself. So the third pouch gives rise to your inferior because they migrate below uh, the fourth pouch derivatives, which give rise to your superior parathyroid glands, okay? Notice that the thyroid gland is not actually derived from any of the pouches. We're going to talk about the thyroid gland later on, but just, just to be clear here, the thyroid gland itself has nothing to do with the pouches or grooves or arches, okay? We'll, we'll see that it develops uh, from a, a diverticulum from, from the pharynx, so kind of from the base of the tongue and kind of migrates down to its final position in the neck, okay? So third, thymus, inferior parathyroid. Fourth is going to be your superior parathyroid and your ultimopharyngeal body, okay? And so the ultimate pharyngeal body will be those parafollicular cells of the thyroid. So they migrate towards the thyroid tissue as well. 
So we got a nice, uh, again, chart to, to summarize that. So the groups is very easy, and all the structures we just talked about uh, for the pouches are here as well. So this is, uh, then we get into kind of different syndromes and conditions. So when, when these uh, arches don't develop properly, so we either have uh, non-migration of these neural crest cells into the arches, or for whatever reason, there's some sort of, some sort of insult during development around this, this time, uh, these arches, then either the tissues don't migrate to their proper position or they don't develop at all. So one of these uh, classic kind of conditions is, is what we call the first arch syndrome or Treacher-Collins syndrome. Uh, and so this is due to the failure of migration of these neural crest cells into the first arch. So everything that kind of has to do with the first arch, you pretty much should expect in this condition. And it's a wide range of different symptoms. So not every uh, person who, who, who gets diagnosed with this condition has to have all of, of these malformations present. Sometimes they'll have two, sometimes they'll have three, sometimes they'll have all of them. Okay? So it's kind of like a, a, a range of different things that can go wrong. But what you should expect, again, is going to be this maldevelopment of the jaw. So the mandible might, might be very small, mal maldeveloped. So we call this micrognathia. 50% okay? of these uh, children usually have cleft palates. Okay? They have underdeveloped zygoma. So zygoma is going to be the, the, uh, the kind of zygomatic process, the kind of the cheekbones. So you, you notice it's kind of sunken in, which eventually leads to this drooping of the latter part of the lower eyelids. So because there is no this kind of ch high cheekbone that kind of sunks in and kind of pulls the lower eyelid kind of down. So you have this kind of slanted appearance to the, to the eyes. You notice this, this child here uh, has a normal zygomatic kind of process. So they don't have really that slanting of the eyes, but they definitely have the micrognathia. Uh, you also have some malformation of the pinna, so the kind of the external ear. And again, because that first arch gives rise to the malleus and the incus, uh, you should expect some conductive hearing loss as well. Okay, the next one is the uh, Pierre Robin sequence. Okay, uh, this is also associated with first arch, and uh, students always kind of ask how do you differentiate between the two, and they often overlap with each other. Okay, and the thing to to know here that Pierre Robin is a sequence; it's not a syndrome. So, sequence meaning that you know one kind of condition will, will cause the second one and the second one will cause the third one and so on. Okay, so once you have this, it kind of will end up causing this and this will end up causing that. So you, you pretty much always have three of them. So it's kind of this triad that goes together. Now the Pierre-Robin sequence can be associated with the Treacher-Collins. So uh, children who are, who are diagnosed with Treacher-Collins syndrome can have the Pierre-Robin sequence. But you can have Pierre-Robin sequence without having Treacher-Collins. Okay? So this is almost like a, a small subset of, of symptoms that can be associated with other uh, syndromes. So that's why it's not a syndrome, it's just a sequence of events. So this sequence of events involves, again, maldevelopment of the mandibles. So we have micrognathia or retrognathia. So retrognathia meaning that the mandible is just set uh, a little further back. Okay, so you can see that it's kind of sunken in here, so the chin is not very pronounced. This will also cause the tongue to kind of retract backwards. Okay, so essentially you... You end up with these children who have kind of this tongue in their throat, which is going to cause some airway obstruction. Uh, it's also going to lead to difficulties with, with feeding and so on. And then that tongue, uh, because it's kind of high up in, 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 the, in, the, in the throat, will then cause a cleft palate. So it's going to interfere with the, the growth of the palatal shelves. And so those, those palatal shelves cannot come together and close down. And so you end up with, with a cleft palate. So that's why it's a sequence because one will cause the other and kind of it's a cascading effect 
Uh, so usually these children will end up with all three of them being present. Okay, so we talked about the uh, maldevelopment of the pinna of the ear. So how does the ear develop in the first place? So it's actually interesting that it develops from two separate uh, arches. Okay? And it develops high up in the neck. So if you notice on this image here, we have the mandibular process. So you notice that the ear actually develops below the mandible. Okay, so it doesn't develop kind of in the head or in a, in a face region. It actually develops in the neck, down below. And then once the mandible grows, it kind of pushes the ear up into its uh, final position. But you notice that it develops from these uh, auricular helix. So we have six of these auricular helix. The first three are going to be from the first arch, and the latter three are going to be from the second arch. Okay? And obviously, once they start uh, growing and forming and developing, they eventually develop into this adult helix. Okay? So the numbers kind of represent which part of uh, the pinna, where they came from. So you can, you know, depending on where the malformation is, which part of the ear didn't develop, you can kind of suspect whether it was a second arch issue or whether it was a, a first arch issue. Now, with different uh, malformations, even sometimes when you have proper development of the ear itself, sometimes you can have some remnants uh, of these grooves in between. So sometimes, uh, and some of you might have this, you, you can have some these small little uh, sinuses or these little pits, okay? And so they're usually present right in front of the ear. Most of the time, you can't even notice them. People sometimes, you know, they have uh, hair grown over, or sideburns and stuff, so you, you don't even notice these things in people. Uh, some of them can have it behind the ears. Again, it's just small little missteps during, during the, the, the growth of this pinna. Sometimes it remains open to that, to that groove that was present there before. Right? And sometimes they're just small little pits. They don't lead anywhere. There's just a blind end little, little pocket. So they don't cause any problems, and most of the time people live with them with no problems. Now, uh, I don't want to call it an extreme case of this, but kind of a, a more elaborate kind of persistence of some of these uh, grooves of pouches can lead to uh, this condition called cervical sinus. Okay? So cervical sinus is, is, is this kind of blind end kind of pocket that can be a result of a persistent uh, a groove or a persistent uh, pouch. So if, if we have a persistence of, let's say, uh, groove number two, you're going to have this external cervical sinus. Because it was originally open to the outside, so again, blue is being the ectoderm, so that will eventually become the skin of the neck. So they remain open towards the neck. Okay? So you can put in a catheter uh, into these sinuses, and eventually you know, it's going to get stuck. So it's a blind end kind of pocket. So you can shove the, the, the catheter in to see how deep it goes, and you notice that it's, it's blind end. There's, you can't go any further. You can then you know, do x-ray or anything like that and see that it's, it's a true sinus. And the same is true for the pouches. So if any one of the pouches kind of um, persists, you know, more so than they should, you can end up with these internal uh, cervical sinuses. Again, either one of these will not really cause any problems, aside from just kind of aesthetic, you know, having kind of a small little hole in your neck, right? Most people just kind of cover it up with, with uh, you know, a sticker or something. I don't know. You get a tattoo over it or, or wear a scarf. Um, so we can have an internal cervical sinus. So internal cervical sinus, obviously, you wouldn't notice it on people. You wouldn't be able to see anything. Uh, and unless they get infected or there's some bacteria or food or something like that, it gets stuck in them. For the most part, they don't cause uh, any problems either. Now, if we take that a step further, let's say the uh, external uh, cervical sinus and internal cervical sinus kind of persist. So both a groove and a pouch persist, and they can become continuous with each other. So that membrane 
between them degenerates, but both the groove and the, and the pouch kind of persist, you can end up with a cervical fistula, okay? So a fistula and a sinus are different things, so be, be aware of one or the other. So sinus is just, is just a pocket. A fistula is actually a, a continuation, a, a complete kind of continuity between uh, the kind of aerodigestive tract and the external environment. So obviously in this case, because it opens up into the pharynx, you can have some secretions coming out. So you can have some mucus secretions, some saliva, uh, something like that coming out. So this is a little bit more, you know, unsightly. Uh, you know, this, this can be uh, kind of socially, you know, debilitating for people, you know, just standing around and you're just leaking stuff out of your neck. It's, it's a little disconcerting for people. Uh, so most of the time this will be uh, surgically repaired, right? So, you know, this, this usually doesn't persist very long. But here's a, a, a radiograph of this condition. So again, you can put in a catheter into this. Let's say you're trying to figure out whether it's a sinus or a fistula. So they put in a catheter, they injected some radio, uh, radioactive dye, taken an x-ray, and then you see that the dye actually continues all the way up and then opens up into the pharynx. So that again, they say, yeah, this is, this is a complete uh, fistula. Okay? And then you can kind of uh, deal with it accordingly, whether they, they'll close it off surgically. So surgically, they'll basically just resect it, you know, or close it off, depending on, on where it is and what structures are around, uh, they'll deal with it differently, okay? And finally, we have uh, a cervical cyst. So a cervical cyst, a cyst is, is essentially just a, a sac, a pocket uh, of, of fluid, okay? It's not... Uh, it's not malignant, it's not a tumor, it's, it's, it's nothing to, to kind of really be concerned about unless it starts compressing on some sort of structure or some putting pressure on something. So a cyst by itself is not a big deal. Okay? You can have a cyst anywhere in your body and you know, if it doesn't cause you any problems, uh, you usually don't, don't touch it. Okay? Unless it gets big. Uh, and sometimes you can have small little cysts in neck. So some of you might be sitting around here, you might have a remnant of, of these embryological structures, and you might have a cervical cyst in your neck. It might be so small that you might not never notice it. Or maybe you did notice it. Maybe you know you have just this little, you know, ball, little, little pocket thingy in your side of your neck. Never knew what it was. You know, it didn't bother you, so you didn't, you didn't really, uh, weren't concerned about it. Uh, but sometimes it can start growing. And so it can be small when you're born, and then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, it starts expanding and starts growing. And so that, that's the case with this gentleman here. And so it started expanding all of a sudden, and uh, he ended up with this big, uh, big cyst in his neck, right? And people get obviously concerned. They, they, they think maybe it's a tumor, maybe it's a, uh, a goiter or anything like that, right? But you can do a, a, a CT of this um, structure. You can also do a biopsy, and obviously it'd, it'd come out negative. It'd be just regular uh, serous fluid, nothing else in it, okay? But this... Uh, this kind of uh, cyst, once it gets this big, it, it, it is problematic because obviously we have our carotid sheath here, we have our carotid artery, jugular vein, we have a bunch of nerves, we have the brachial plexus coming out of the neck, we, we have a whole bunch of like neurological structures that are kind of passing through the neck. So having a structure this big uh, can definitely be problematic. Okay, so most in cases like this would definitely get resected and get removed. All right, last one. Let's make it past 70%. Come on.
All right. 81%. Very good. I'll take it. Right, so remember we have those, those six helix, right? The first three helix developed from the first arch and the, the uh, three, uh, sorry, four, five, and six will develop from, from the second arch. Okay, so A is correct. Okay, another condition that uh, we have is uh, called the George uh, syndrome or anomaly. Uh, and there's kind of like a catchy mnemonic, no pun intended, uh, called catch-22, okay, which kind of helps you remember the, the different... Uh, structures that are involved and what causes it. So uh, the George anomaly is, is caused by a deletion of the, in the long arm of chromosome 22. So that's where that 22 comes from. And catch uh, represents all the different uh, development abnormalities that are commonly present with this condition. Okay? So we, en we end up having cardiac uh, anomalies, uh, specific conotronco. So conotronco abnormalities are usually uh, involving the kind of outflow track of the heart. Uh, so the kind of a conus arteriosus, the kind of pulmonary trunk region. Uh, so you can have either kind of a mix-up there or connection or malformation, being small, big, overriding, kind of what we see in tetralogy of Fallot as well. Uh, the A being the abnormal uh, facies. Uh, so they can have all kinds of kind of facial uh, malformations and abnormalities. Uh, T being the thymic hypoplasia or aplasia. So the thymus can be either completely absent or it can be uh, very small, uh, which would obviously have uh, detrimental effects in, in uh, immune systems. So these children might get uh, infections very, very frequently, might get sick. Uh, cleft palate, also very common uh, with this, and hypocalcemia. So hypocalcemia uh, is, is caused by uh, either absence or, or maldevelopment, again, of the parathyroid gland. So we know the parathyroid glands produce the parathyroid hormone. So if they don't develop properly, then uh, the parathyroid hormone is not going to be present or it's going to be present in, in small amounts. Uh, and then they also added later uh, psychiatric disorder. So I guess it didn't fit with the catch, so they kind of didn't give it a letter. Catch P doesn't sound as, as cool. Um, but those are also frequently present with uh, the George anomaly. So all types of different psychosis, schizophrenia, anything like that uh, sometimes also shows up. So... I was trying to find out what the, what the incidence of this is, and I, I, I read something that it was about 30% of the cases uh, have some sort of associated uh, psychiatric disorders as well. Okay. So we said it's the, due to chromosome 22, and it, 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 this causes the faulty migration of the neurocrests, uh, and, and predominantly involves the third and fourth pouch. So if we kind of think back a few slides back, we were talking about the third and fourth pouches. Those are the ones that are going to give rise uh, remember to our superior and inferior uh, parathyroid glands. Right? Remember the third one kind of migrates below the fourth, so that one ends up giving rise to the inferior parathyroids. The fourth gave rise to the superior parathyroids and the ultimal pharyngeal body. Uh, some of the uh, pretty uh, exposing kind of conditions or kind of some of the causes that they suspect is uh, retinoids. So retinoids are this kind of chemical compound that's uh, frequently used in pharmaceutical industry uh, for all kinds of kind of skin conditions, skin cancers, and things like that. Uh, alcohol use during pregnancy and maternal diabetes is also suspected to uh, increase the incidence of this. Okay, so thyroid gland. So we, we've uh, alluded to the thyroid gland before. So this is where the thyroid gland uh, develops. So we see that the uh, 
thyroid actually develops from the thyroid uh, diverticulum that develops from the, uh, the floor of the pharynx. Okay, so again, it's not a, a pouch. Okay, so it doesn't form from any of the pharyngeal pouches, arches, grooves, or anything like that. Okay, so it just starts forming this little diverticulum. And this is exactly kind of the, the region where we're going to have our future uh, tongue. Okay, so there's a tongue. So you see that it's kind of forming right at the, the back of the tongue, the kind of the pharynx region, the throat. And then it starts descending. Okay, and it's going to eventually descend to its kind of adult position around the C5, T1 vertebral level, kind of right in front of the, the cricoid cartilage and, and the trachea. So because it, uh, it descends, uh, to this adult position from this high up in the throat position, it, it kind of migrates all the way down there. And as it migrates down, it can get stuck pretty much anywhere along the path. Okay? So as, this, as it migrates, it, 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 it follows or it kind of migrates through this thyroglossal duct. So the thyroglossal duct is essentially the path of this uh, thyroid diver diverticulum to the foramen cecum. So foramen cecum is that kind of uh, junction between the anterior two-thirds and posterior uh, third of the tongue. So sometimes you can you can uh, see the foramen cecum uh, on an adult tongue. It's kind of this it's little pit, little round uh, structure at the back of the tongue. And if if this um, migration doesn't again go according to plan, we can either have uh, ectopic thyroid tissue or we can have a normal position of the final thyroid. Okay. So the thyroid gland can just get stuck somewhere along the path and never migrate to its final position. So you can have thyroid gland anywhere in the neck, maybe around the hyoid. It can have the thyroid gland still in the back of the tongue if it doesn't migrate at all. Or it can kind of break up into pieces. So you can have some remnants of thyroid tissue in the tongue, and so it will start producing thyroid hormones. Uh, and then you can still have a normal thyroid down below. Uh, you can have remnants, obviously, again, anywhere along this path. The other thing that can happen is once the thyroid gland migrates to its uh, final adult position, sometimes we can have, uh, again, a cyst, a pocket that forms as a remnant of the styloglossal duct. Okay? So even though the actual thyroid tissue may not be present, it just uh, uh, forms a cyst. So again, just a small little fluid pocket. Okay? Or there may be some uh, thyroid tissue remnants here, and so it, it will, you do a biopsy and you test it, and you'll be able to see that it is producing uh, thyroid hormone. Okay? Oftentimes, it gets stuck around the hyoid bone, so this is kind of a common area uh, where you're going to see it. And then you can also have uh, a, uh, either a fistula forming from the thyroglossal duct. Okay? So if this opens up into the outside, so kind of what we've seen previously, then it continues on with this thyroglossal um, duct, and you can have an, a fistula open to the outside. So again, this will usually leak... Um, some mucus, some saliva, because it will have an opening into uh, the oral cavity. We do have a couple uh, interesting specimens in the lab that you, you might be able to, uh, to see that have this kind of remnant called the pyramidal lobe. Okay? So the pyramidal lobe is normally have the normal thyroid uh, with two lobes. So you have a, you know, a right and a left lobe with an isthmus uh, in the middle. Okay? And so this thyroglossal duct is a kind of a midline structure that descends. And sometimes the, the lowermost part of the thyroglossal uh, duct doesn't degenerate and it remains kind of attached to the thyroid gland. So you essentially end up with this, with this thyroid gland kind of with three, three lobes. Okay? You have a left, right, and this kind of middle pyramidal lobe. It's usually in the midline. Sometimes it can be attached to one of the other lobes. Uh, but that's, uh, we do have specimens in the lab, uh, a couple of them that have this 
embryological kind of uh, remnant. So here's a, 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 an image of a, a boy who's suffering from, from this condition. So this is a thyroglossal uh, cyst. Okay, so we see that as a, a midline structure. So along the descent of this thyroid gland, and it got stuck again right around that hyoid bone. That's a very, very common area where, where these things kind of um, occur. And so th this would have to be biopsied just to make sure what it was. Uh, so if you, if you did the biopsy, you'd see that it's just clear fluid there, not, no, no uh, thyroid hormone present or no thyroid tissue being. So that's not a glandular structure. It's just a cyst. Okay? So that's how you'd be able to diagnose it. Oh, well, we finished early. So uh, let's take a nice long break, grab a coffee, and come back on the hour. <laughs>